Hello once again, everybody. This is Peter Graves, and welcome to another edition of Ticket to Fly, the leading international ski jumping source for news and information. A big show today focused on the Four Hills with more of what's coming up. Let's go to my colleague, Tom Kelly. And we have a big episode of Ticket to Fly coming to you today. First of all, on the news front, after three of four events in the Four Hills Tournament, it is right now the polls establishing themselves as the favorites as we head into the finale this week in Bischofshofen, Austria. We'll also do an in-depth interview with a great American ski jumping hero, Mike Holland. Mike, the winner in 1989 in the Four Hills Tournament in Bischofshofen. So as we head into that venue for the finale of the Four Hills Tournament, it will be nostalgic for Mike Holland, now a ski coach and volunteer extraordinaire, keeping the sport moving in the USA. In the Four Hills Tournament action, it kicked off last week in Oberstdorf, and it was quiet with no fans there, but hometown hero Kyle Geiger came through with the win. Of course, Oberstdorf is the kickoff of the event, and everybody was particularly interested how the hometown boy Carl Geiger might figure in, given the fact that he was recovering from the COVID infection. Well, he won big. He won at home with jumps of 127 and 136.5. The big jump of the day, Marcus Eisenbeekler, also from Germany, providing fireworks. He went 142 meters. Camille Stoke was second on the day. Lindvik of Norway was third. After the competition, we talked to Carl Geiger about his hometown win. I'm really proud. It's, it was a special day for me. And yeah, in, in Oberstdorf, to, to win in Oberstdorf and after the last weeks, what, what happened in, in my situation, it's, it's really great. And I'm just thankful and, and happy. Especially the, the ski flying week, then, the, then that my daughter was born, and then the COVID test. I uh, said it's the most exciting week in my life, and with with lots of ups and downs, and to to come here back to don't know what what exactly will 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 happen here, and then to win. This is yeah, I I can't describe it. It's really special. Later, we spoke to Geiger about what it was like to compete at home with no fans in the audience. Uh, it's really sad because um, especially the, the audience in Oberstdorf and the atmosphere is one of the best um, in, the, in the whole World Cup and in the, yeah, on, on the, each hill. It's always special and great to, to compete here with, with full spectators and so it's a bit sad but it's still a uh, special situation and also a special moment for me with also without. So a great win for Carl Geiger and his home hill in Oberstdorf and then the scene moved over to the east in Garmisch-Partenkirchen for the New Year's jump and it was the Poles establishing themselves as the favorite with David Kubaki coming through with the win. Well, Tom, you're right. The Poles uh, were highly motivated. By the time they got to Garmisch, they went one, three, 
and four. And bear in mind, just before Obersdorf, one of the persons on the team had a positive test for COVID, but upon retest, uh, that test was shown to be an error. So the Polish team was okay, and they have been phenomenal. Now, David Kobaki set a New Hill record at Garmisch on New Year's Day, 144 meters. Absolutely extraordinary. And for Kobaki, who's coming on, his fifth World Cup win, the first of this season. Granerud was very close in second place, continuing to show that consistency. But we talked to Kobaki about his Garmisch Four Hills win. Uh, yeah, a pretty, pretty good improvement. Uh, it was just a small change in my in my jump after the uh, my coach advice after the Oberstdorf. It's just a small small change, but it makes a lot of uh, difference on the hill. And I'm really glad that uh, that our team is working this way. That we could just find something small, make basically two or three words about this with the coach, and it's just going uh, really great. So. I think that's uh, that's really good and that shows the the power of our team. So yeah, it was good performance. Uh, two two people on the podium, winning third place, also fourth place. I think uh, that's uh, that's really great. So Kabaki from Poland taking the win in Garmisch, and as the tour headed into Austria for the famed Bergisel jump in Innsbruck, it was Poland again, but this time Camille Stok picking up his first win of the season in the Four Hills Tournament. Remember, Gronerud won the qualification for the third round, but it was Camille Stoke of Poland. Very, very impressive. As on this day, Poland at Innsbruck showed a vivid reminder of the depth of their team. So Stoke takes the lead on that competition. Remember how consistent he's been. Second at Oberstdorf, fourth in Garmisch, but he dominated in Ensbruck. And we talked to Stoke about his win. I want to say that uh, it was a fantastic day, obviously. Uh, I did a great job uh, and, uh, and also great ski jumping today. But also my team members, uh, my team colleagues was uh, also outstanding, were outstanding, so um, I'm happy also from them. Uh, it's, it's nice to be part of, of such a great team, so uh, thank you very much. And in, in this sport discipline, you need, to, you need to be really, really focused on yourself and, and really careful with, with, with all these things, uh, about thinking, about this, this thing inside your mind. Uh, you need to really stay on ground, stay on your own way. Just, uh, just uh, do what you can do, and, and nothing more. Uh, and that's all. This yeah. is. Uh, I'm, I will not, uh, you know, uh, disturb anyone. I will not. Uh, um, I don't know. Uh, change their jumps. Uh, I only can. I have only influence on, on my own. So. That's, so with his win in Innsbruck, Camille Stoke of Poland taking the lead in the Four Hills Tournament with three of the four events in the books right now, 809.9 points. He has about a 15-point lead over his teammate D David Kubaki, Kubaki with 794.7, and Norway's Halver Egner Granerud right now standing third at 789.3. Qualifications coming up Tuesday in Bischofshofen with the big event, the finale of the Four Hills Tournament tournament on Wednesday.
And Tom, statistically, a number of athletes could win this event. It's going to be close, but uh, based on what we saw in Ensbruck with Stoke in first, Kubaki in third, and Zila in fourth place, I think you're looking at the remarkable depth and consistency of the Polish team. I think they're going to be something, but it's going to come right down to the wire. You know, and every year in the Four Hills Tournament as an American ski jumping fan, I know that you hearken back to those days uh, in 1989 when Mike Holland from Norwich, Vermont, picked up a win on that hill. The only American win in the Four Hills Tournament's history. And Peter, you had a chance to catch up with Mike and talk to him and relive some of those memories. Yeah, not only talking about Bishop Sofen and uh, the royalty of his performance there, but also some very interesting stuff stuff, some cerebral material about the psychology of ski jumping. I think you're going to like it. Well, it's a good interview, and now we're going to turn you over to the interview. Here's Peter Graves talking to Four Hills Tournament winner from 1989, Mike Holland, now a ski coach and a volunteer uh, in his community, bringing the sport to more and more kids in America. Let's take a listen. We have a very special guest today, and that is American ski jumping star, a two-time Olympian in 84 and 88, uh, Mike Holland out of Norwich, Vermont. Of course, everybody knows Mike's name. He's not only had a legendary athletic career, but has gone on to volunteer and be a very important part of the American ski jumping development scene. So, Mike Holland, good to have you with us, and uh, happy holidays, my friend. Thank you, Peter. Nice to be here with you. You have had such a career. Uh, it started off in the Upper Valley. Uh, uh, people who are not familiar with that, the Hanover, New Hampshire area, the Norwich, Vermont area. How did you get involved in ski jumping in the first place? Peter, when I was 10 years old, uh, Jeff Hastings who is three years older, had been ski jumping for a few years. Uh, our fathers are friends. He showed up at our house in Norwich with his father and with a pair of ski jumping skis. They plopped them onto the living room floor and said, hey, Mike, we'd like you to come try ski jumping. I said I'd never considered it, but okay. Uh, I, I went, I think, a few days later, joined the Ford Sayer practice, was absolutely scared to death. Uh, but loved it. And, uh, and, and that's how it all began. And, and then, of course, uh, many years later, Jeff Hastings and I were on the Sarajevo Olympic team together. And you look back and, and put into words uh, what it was about the sport that seemed to captivate you and hold your attention? I have a, the type of personality that is attracted to challenges. Um, I, I, I like uh, things that are difficult to master, um, and uh, I, I don't know. I did, there was just something about seeing ski jumping for the first time that looked beautiful, uh, especially because it's not easy to jump properly and have control in the air uh, and, and to, to overcome your fear in a way that you can fly comfortably and far down the hill. Uh, so I, I guess it was uh, a combination of the beauty of the sport and my personality. And knowing you as I do at, at this point in our lives and uh, known you for quite a, quite a many years, 
you're very you're a smart and analytical guy. You're interested in numbers. You're interested in angles. Uh, uh, you're you're very innovative and creative by personality. How do those all those personality traits seem to serve you well in a sport like jumping? <laughs> That's a good question. Um... It's certainly, you need to be analytical to pick apart your technique in any sport like ski jumping or ski racing. Um, I just saw it as an incredible challenge. Uh, when I was young, for the first six years uh, ski jumping, I was really quite bad. Uh, I remember traveling with the three Hastings brothers and their father to weekend competitions around the Northeast. Uh, each of the Hastings brothers were in different age groups. They typically came home with the, with the tallest trophy. And I was generally in the last three uh, placings of, of every competition I was in. It was really mental abuse for about six years. And, and you know, I, 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 I have heard coaches from back in the day, you know, tell me more recently that, boy, you know, we were actually trying to encourage you to to get into another sport like cross country skiing <laughs> because you just weren't very good and it didn't seem like you ever would be. But I was so determined and yeah. was so in love with the sport that over time, the focus and the, the, my analytical ability um, and my training seemed to you know make up for what was perhaps not born talent. Yeah, it's interesting because I know you now as as even at I, I think you're about fifty eight years old. Uh, is that right? Fifty eight. Just turned fifty nine this month. Okay, all right. Um, you're a good athlete. You move well. You're a good alpine skier. Uh, uh, I've seen you play golf when we've been together for for events. You're you're a good golfer. I've always thought that there is, even though there are two very divergent sports, I always thought there was some. Um, similarities between golf and ski jumping actually yes and that's one of the analogies that i give uh when someone asks how it is that one athlete is able to jump far down the hill and another who seems to be just as physically able is not able to and i describe a golf swing where it has to be exactly right if you hit the ball perfectly it can go very far and and straight it, it just one slight change to your technique and you can slice it off into the rough or hook it or top the ball. Uh, and you're not going to hit the ball very far at all. It, it's very analogous to ski jumping where your, your position from which you jump your in run position and your timing and the way that you jump from your in run position into the air uh, while jumping explosively has to be technically perfect. Uh, just having your chin uh, three quarters of an inch higher than it should be uh, coming down the in run can make you jump dramatically shorter or longer. Um, so uh, it, it is in fact very much similar to golf. It's, it's very technically sensitive. The whole sport happens within a split second from the in run position, jumping into the air and it has to be exactly right. And uh, it, it's, you know, that makes it frustrating um, because if you don't have it exactly right, you're jumping so much shorter than the best competitors in the competition. But then it's also very exciting because when you get in the groove and you fine tune your technique, 
uh, and you're able to repetitively uh, jump with perfect technique within that split second every time, then you do jump to the bottom of the hill and, you know, which is such an incredible feeling aerodynamically. Yeah. So interesting in both sports, of course, uh, and we won't belabor the point, but you, you need to get in this sort of zone and there's a certain Zen involved, but whatever all of those factors were, you put them together, a two-time Olympian, as we said, five-time national champion, you had five top tens in world cups, including, and this is the next subject area, Mike, I want to go a first place at mm-hmm. Bischofshof in Austria, Four Hills. That tournament is going on now. What was it like to win the Four Hills? You know, I'd come close quite a few times. Uh, I would put one great jump uh, into a competition, but wouldn't have a second great jump. And I realized after many years with the U.S. team that it was just my head that was getting in the way, not my, my body. Um, and, and, and so I focused heavily on sports psychology, um, and, uh, you know, we, eventually I was able to overcome the nerves where I, I knew that after say one jump in the competition where I was, uh, I would be able to win if, if I just had another good jump. Uh, but then, you know, the nerves affects how your muscles feel, uh, when it's so close, you can taste it and you've been trying to win a world cup for so many years. Uh, and, and just that difference in feeling of your muscles would then dr- dramatically affect your jump because the technique is so touchy, as I just described. Uh, so eventually I was able to focus entirely on technique um, and, and, and keep all of the thoughts of winning out of my head, which made a big difference and allowed me to win it at, at, in Bischofshofen. Um, and, and this is actually why I did quite well at ski flying as well, because uh, I was able to, you know, most athletes when they're ski flying, you know, even at this level, the World Cup, you know, competitors uh, are scared because these jumps are so much bigger than Olympic sized jumps. But uh, I found for some reason with my quirky brain, uh, when competitions were the scariest because of winds or condition or just the sheer size of the hill, that's when I excelled. Uh, That's when I, I was able to hyper focus on technique where Whereas other athletes who, who got nervous under those conditions, it, it was a detriment to their technique. And what do you recall that day being like, Mike, when, when you won? What was the feeling like uh, being an American winning this prestigious uh, leg of the Four Hills? It made me feel very proud um, and to a large degree because our team competed on uh, basically a shoestring budget. Uh, All of the European teams that we competed against had such uh, enormous budgets and and, and such an enormous development system and and coaches that brought kids from a young level all the way to the Olympics. Uh, And we really had to scrape, uh, you know, to get the training in that we needed throughout the year leading up to the competition season. Um, So, you know, what I'm the most proud of together with the other athletes on our team in the eighties and our coaches is the fact that we did it on such a shoestring budget. Um, you know, it, it, it was not easy uh, competing with th- these, these countries in Europe that, you know, where everyone is you know, famous and, and makes a ton of money um, and, and, and has, you know, has well-funded teams. Um, we just plain didn't, but we got it done nonetheless. 
And the Four Hills, of course, uh, which are going on now, they this year, of course, there are no spectators due to COVID. But mm-hmm. the thing I remember from my visit to there, uh, you know, a few years ago was the enormity of the crowds, the sound of the crowds. And let me set that question up by also saying Mackenzie Boyd Close, the Canadian mm-hmm. who trains with the USANS program, yep. told me in a recent interview that it's really different jumping with no crowds in the stadium. You know, uh-huh. and uh, I, 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 I'm wondering if you could comment on that sort of juxtaposition because, um, yes. you know, as an announcer, having done those for many years, I was really excited to sit in the chair and call Four Hills. It was, in a way, our Super Bowl. Right. You know, I and I think of it as as a as a Grand Slam tennis event. You know, these these four competitions are very much analog- analogous to the U.S. Open. You know, the, the French Open, the Australian Open. Uh, and, and, and absolutely the, the crowds affect the atmosphere. They affect how you feel and can affect how you jump. Um, and, and another, you know, big, you know, famous competition that happens every year is Holman Cullen in, in Oslo, Norway. And, you know, it, it, just like the crowds at the four Hills tournament, uh, whenever any jumper has a long jump, the crowd understands ski jumping well enough and, and knows what it takes to jump well under conditions like that, you know, with low in run speeds and they appreciate, you, you know, your ability to jump far and, and cheer for, for you, no matter what country you're from. Um, you know, so when there's a big crowd, you know, it certainly does feel differently. Uh, it, it makes it more exciting. It also can make you more nervous um, and can affect your technique either positively or negatively. Mike, I want to take you to another really seminal event in your career, uh, 1985. Uh, uh, you, uh, for uh, 27 minutes, uh, were the world distance record holder. Uh, after that time, Matty Nukkonen, the legendary late superstar from Finland, came down went one, just but one meter longer. Right. Um, I've talked to you a lot in interviews I've done with you about that day, but uh, very few things have moved me as much as uh, having you talk about ski flying. And I remember in an interview, I think we did with ESPN years ago, you, you talked about how we don't, you know, people who don't ski fly or don't do this. Uh, it's a rare, a rare breed, but I remember you saying how time slowed down, how uh, your flight over the hill was just, almost otherworldly. Can you recall some of those uh, emotions? I can actually, yes. Uh, we had a sports psychologist traveling with the U.S. team at the time. Uh, he had outfitted me with a heart rate monitor I was wearing under my suit. And while I look calm, if you look back at the video of that world record jump, I certainly was not. Uh, he, the, he, he, he recorded the data uh, and, and looked at the data later and saw that during each of my jumps on that ski flying hill, uh, my heart rate was at about 185 beats a minute. So wow, jacked then. Uh, totally jacked. But, you know, oh. at the same time, this, this is what I was just describing, how when I was nervous and the other competitors were, were nervous, you know, I was able to hyper focus on my technique, which actually made me jump better. Uh, and, and so... I, I certainly was nervous, you know, uh, a teammate uh, had the start number before me 
and he hadn't uh, done much ski flying. He had a habit of jumping early, which is a no-no in the sport. You start to lean out over your skis before the air begins to come up underneath your skis. So you don't meet in the middle and fly down the hill. You start to endo. And so he tipped over over the knoll and cartwheeled down the landing hill and then was carried off. <laughs> and and I, I decided, I told myself, I'm not going to watch him. I'm not going to, I decided at the last minute to watch him when I watched him flip, which made me even more nervous. And then I was next. Uh, <laughs> Gee. <laughs> so, um, uh, but <clears throat> yes, uh, you know, the, the, when, when a jump works well, AR dynamically, <clears throat> even though you're, 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 you're going down, uh, through the air, it feels, you feel the lift aerodynamically and it feels like you're going up and you're pulling out and away from the hill and headed towards the parking lot. And, uh, then there's a game that, that happens in your mind. Uh, you know, this is what you're training for. You're trying to jump very far down the hill, but then, and so you want to hold on to your technique and your flight, but then another part of your brain is saying, look, look what you're going. You're, you're going to land in the parking lot on the flats and that's going to be the end of you put the brakes on here. And, and so you're having this, this, this conflict in your head as you're, as you're in the middle of a long jump, especially ski flying. And, and I remember that feeling, but you know, I, just plain held on to the jump uh, uh, because once before, uh, two years before, I I I, I pulled I, I I I let the end of a long jump go in in the Czech Republic in Harkov where I could have had the world record and I had kicked myself for two years ever since you know because I I had the opportunity to set a world record then but let it go and I told myself if I ever had the chance again I certainly would take the chance and. Uh, that, that was certainly an exciting day. And just like at the Four Hills tournament and, and then Holman Colon, you know, the crowd there is enormous, like 100,000 spectators. And they all cheer when anybody has a long jump, especially if it's a world record. Uh, so they cheered for that jump. And uh, th that was a very special and exciting day for me. And, and Mike, your relationship with ski jumping, even though you retired quite long ago, has never stopped. Um, you do a tremendous amount of volunteering and support work in the Hanover, New Hampshire area, in the Upper Valley. You're a coach. Um, you've helped, along with some other people, keep this program going. Uh, Mike, I mean, the kids are really, really lucky to have you and the support of others as well. But it must, uh, knowing you, I... I I know this is a really satisfying thing for you to give back. You feel that's really important. I do. Uh, we had a practice last night on the 20 and the 32 meter jumps in Hanover, where I began uh, on that very 20 meter that I described where I took my first jump, where I was so scared at 10 years old. Uh, you know, we, we had uh, kids jumping over there. In fact, my 16 year old daughter, started ski jumping this winter and she was jumping on that 20 meter last night. She has been a ski racer, uh, but she decided to stop ski racing and join the high school ski jumping team <laughs> together with a friend of her. So, so Greta was jumping for the second time in, you know, in her life, uh, you know, last, last week was her first time. And so she's been having a lot of fun uh, and, and we made snow. So even though all the snow around here has melted away since we made snow, we were still able to have our practices. The hills were in good shape. Um, and we have a number of high school kids who are very excited and enthusiastic about the sport and a number of younger kids as well. The numbers are down a little bit this year because of COVID. 
and I'm not able to go into the local grade schools and run my recruiting program with a roller jump uh, to recruit more kids and get them into the program. But still, uh, we have a number of kids who were there last year as well and are having a blast. So, Mike, overall, uh, because we do not and we will never have the same numbers Austria, Germany, Finland or Norway have in right. ski jumping. But despite that and despite all the the changes, things that ski jumping has had to respond to in this country over over a number of years and particularly since uh, when the a point when uh, the uh, U.S. ski team um didn't provide the funding support that they did. I mean, that's all old news now, but right. despite, despite that, Mike, how are you, are you optimistic about the future of the sport here? Uh, uh, what, what's your take on that? There are a group of very dedicated uh, former jumpers and coaches uh, and, and athletes who are working very hard to grow the numbers of, uh, kids competing in the sport in the United States and to support them in any way that we can. Uh, so I'm optimistic. I certainly am. It's not something that happens quickly. It takes time. Um, and, you know, we, we've sort of like the whole world has hit the pause button because of COVID. Uh, but <clears throat> that will soon change, I think, with immunizations. And uh, we have been on an upward trajectory, growing the numbers in the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, improving the, uh, the quality of the training that, that uh, kids get at different ski jump clubs around the country. Uh, there's a big effort, you know, Jeff Hastings uh, is working very hard at this. Uh, Rex Bell, you know, one of our U.S. ski team coaches from back in the day, um, dedicates a lot of his life to it. He's very passionate about it, uh, improving the sport in the country. So, yes, I think eventually – we will, we will get to the point where we have a larger number of uh, young jumpers on the national team who do well internationally as we did back in the 80s. Yeah, and, and, and during that time where, yeah, you, you didn't have a lot of funding compared to other countries then, but, but you had a, a number of full-time coaches. Uh, you were able to have uh, access to World Cups in the United States and like Placid, for example. Uh, huh. there, there, there was a nucleus uh, that, that percolated some pretty darn good results uh, with you guys uh, back at that time period. And I'm thinking this is uh, around the time when Greg Winsberger was the coach. Exactly. Greg, Greg was the coach together with Rex Bell, uh, you know, and then Erling Riemerslotten from Norway came over and joined. Uh, and, and so together, we, this group just clicked. We worked very well together. Um, it was all positive. We were supporting each other. Uh, it was a really fun and special time. I, you know, I often think back and I reminisce about that time with Greg Winsberger. Uh, talk, we talk about what a great thing we had and what a special um, um, team dynamic that we had that it's hard to replicate. And I haven't really experienced that type of teamwork uh, again, in, in, you know, my life sense, you know, in business uh, or in coaching or, you know, in any aspect of my life, uh, everything just seemed to click. You know, it was a, it was a matter of the personalities and, and the work ethic and, and everybody involved. Uh, you know, there were, you know, Dennis McGrain and Landis Arnold who were on the national team who were going to Dartmouth College. 
you know, just two miles from Norwich where I live uh, and where Jeff Hastings lived. Uh, and, and so we, we traveled together uh, on the World Cup tour. You know, there were times when a good number of us scored World Cup points in the same competition, you know, which was pretty darn exciting, especially, uh, you know, especially on the shoestring string budget that I described. Yeah. And uh, Mike, you'll be uh, watching the uh, Four Hills Tournay on television. Any thoughts? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this has been an interesting year for jumping, uh, uh, jumping in a bubble, but uh, we have seen some great performances and uh, probably above them all that uh, Granerud of Norway has been uh, just amazing. Yes, he has. Absolutely. And I, you know, there's a, there's a young jumper. Well, he's maybe not all that young, but he's, uh, new on the scene from Japan, uh, you know, I, he, if, if you watch him, Sato, he's, he's, I've never seen anybody with such flexible ankles. You know, his shin angle is so far forward coming down the in run. And I think he's going to be one who you will see in the near future winning, you know, consistently. Uh, you know, he's in the top 10 in the World Cup now, but, uh, you know, I, I expect him to rock it to the very top. Thank you, Mike. It is always a delight to talk to you, and uh, I, I respect so much the work that you have done. Um, so uh, thanks for taking the time, buddy, and uh, happy holidays. We'll be watching the Four Hills along with you. You're welcome, Peter. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. All right, that's Mike Holland today on Ticket to Fly. Thank you.